Recorded live in Manhattan's East Village at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, this is The Poetry Project. So this is how tonight is going to work, um, or run, is um, Monica De La Torre is going to introduce Max, and then we are going to take a break, five, six, seven minutes. Um, well, no, I mean, sorry. Then Max will read, then we'll take a break. <laughs> like, whoa, getting ahead of myself here. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, there will be, we'll both introduce, yeah, we'll introduce, then we'll take a break, forget about it, and come back with readings. Um, so, yes, Max will read, we will take a break, we'll come back, I will introduce uh, Matt Langabuco, and then, um, and then we will take that break until Wednesday, when I assume we'll all be seeing each other again. So, uh, without further ado, please welcome Monica De La Torre. I'm really, really, really happy to introduce Max. Where, where's, where's Max? Oh, <laughs> hey. Um, who is, as many of you know, the author of two chapbooks, um, Together Men Make Paradigms, published by Portable Press at Yo-Yo Labs in 2014, as well as Emoji for Chair Heart, published by Belladonna, also in 2014. Last year, Together Men Make Paradigms premiered at Dixon Place with an all-poet and activist cast and was a finalist for the Leslie Scalpino Award. And she is the current, or the 2014, I guess, but it extends till now, uh, Poetry Project Emerge Surface Be Fellow. And she was also a 2014 Poets Fellow. And you might all know this because you read it on the Poetry Project's page. And it is not really necessary for me to say all these things. She also co-directs a pilot program, Readings in Gender and Sexuality, in the undergraduate writing program at Columbia University. So um, Max and I have been spending a lot of time together. And we do share that experience of teaching at Columbia. We've never actually seen each other there. And one thing I can say about Max is that, unlike me, she is an unsurpassable time manager, <laughs> literally and figuratively speaking. Um, since we started working together last fall, she has completed a poetry manuscript, written a couple, if not three, academic papers, one of them fittingly on Gertrude Stein. Uh, for an assortment of conferences. She also started a couple of plays and written isolated poems. Um, oh, and she also got a prestigious teaching job at Stanford University. And uh, while she was doing all this, she made time to meet with me in um, different parts of Brooklyn and Manhattan. And um, I don't think I'm exaggerating. I think while on vacation in Puerto Rico, she wrote the first 30 pages of a play whose plot and characters are so delirious, I don't think I can begin to do justice, justice to them here. Suffice it to say that it would have taken me about a year to come up with the plot and another year to come up with the development of those 30 first pages. Um, while discussing this new play, I realized that what I was immediately taken by in Max's work her ability to write theater that works like poetry on the page and poetry that works like theater when animated and read out loud was not a figment of my imagination nor a shellacking of my own ideals and projections onto her output. Max is an acute listener. And I want to quote something from um, Bart's uh, essay on listening because I think this is something that Max does really, really, really well. To listen is to adopt an attitude of decoding what is obscure, blurred, or mute in order to make available to consciousness the underside of meaning, what is experienced, postulated, intentionalized as hidden. Max is such an acute listener 
that she in, she's like the nerve-inducing type that stares at you while taking it all in and prompts you to examine what you're saying as you're saying it, since the process make you all, makes you all the more aware of the fact that by dialoguing, you're engaging in one of the deepest of deep interrelational activities. Let me be clear, Max is not judgmental when listening. She's not engaging in an unverbalized debate with her listeners, and if she does, she hides it very well. But she's rather gathering material that will come out unrecognizable once it has been filtered through the wildly imaginative black box of the creative part of her brain. Let us call this black box a sensibility, a sensibility that's radically against norm core, urgently non-normative, invested in testing the myriad possibilities that the utterances put forth in her poems and plays might generate in terms of producing new subjectivities and destabilizing the conventions of speech. This sensibility is never nonsensical or smug, but critical and hard-edged, making you wonder why we keep on saying the things that we say in the ways that we've been taught to say them, instead of altering reality by expressing what has not been said in poetry and elsewhere. A phrase Mac Wellman once told me has become almost a mantra to me, and it couldn't apply better to what Max does so well. He said, we only exist in dialogue. Timing is essential to dialogue, and in, Max, in Max's work, it attains the highest degrees of exactitude. Max's understanding of the theatrical as being the locus of the intersection of the body and language, and her attendant activation of the theatrical is exemplary. She fine-tunes our listening so that after hearing her dialogues, her lyrics, her addresses to figures we never thought could be so animated, Cher, Dionne Warwick, Warhol, Nancy Reagan, Diana Ross, Michael Jackson, and along, et cetera, including Pegasus, followers, mysterious followers, and even Crocs, reality feels just so lifelike, to quote one of her characters. Lest I botch the timing of these brief words meant only to show my awe for what she does so naturally, and to whet your appetite for her reading, I will proceed to take my seat now. <laughs> Please welcome Max Crandall. Monica, that was amazing. Thank you so much. Um, it's been so amazing to work with Monica over the past many months. Um, Monica, as probably everyone knows, is super brilliant, really fun to hang out with, and you've helped me so much. Um, I'm also really grateful for this fellowship at the Poetry Project, um, so thanks to Stacy and Laura and Nicole and Judah. Oh, I have a lot of props. Um, and thank you, everyone, for being here tonight. Um, So I have a lot of props because I primarily write, like Monica was saying, um, experimental theater in the tradition of poets um, theater. And, but tonight I'm going to read you three poems. And I think in the process of writing plays, I've been working on these poems that are focused on cultural icons and sort of inverting those cultural icons to find um, well, to argue for thinking through difference, personhood, the queer imagination, these sorts of things. Um, yeah, okay, so I'm gonna start with my warm-up poem. 
um, because I think, I like this poem because I think it has one um, true line in it about the color gold. Okay. I also think it's like, I write about a genre a lot, and I think this is a re-envisioning of the tabloid. It's called, Dion Warwick Stares Down Her Enemies. Raising banners is attractive, makes one burst with personality. Genre wants us to memorize these things, how poster women influence wars through style. But, but, Jackie O manages to like her girlfriend, thank you very much, and would rather not see Joan burned at the stake. Besides, Jackie's busy at the nursery, where she works nights, fretting over hibiscus, and ouch, the constellations. Meanwhile, in her everlasting trench coat, Dionne Warwick stares down her enemies, reducing them to straining teenagers and secretly considering herself America's last action idol. She spends much of her time as we do, leaning against door frames, talking on the telephone. She dreams of her lost heroes while fingering the long cord. The men tend to more commemorative cruelties. With Chris Brown in his wretched kingdom, the stakes of celebrity vassalage get knobby around the nobodies he becomes and then shuns. Speaking of violence, the first episode of Inside Literature ponders Hemingway's flagrant remarks about boating. In the second installment, rumor has it Papa will fork over one of his savage sweaters to the singer. In stereo, the forest weeps new rivers suddenly, as in myth. Everyone knows gold is a shaking color, a key to what the early bisexuals taught us with their oratorical chanting. Earthquake or milkshake, which is to suggest there will always be progress always be infighting, but to clash, to do overthrow well, one must couch abstention in rejection and eat and yell, and eat and yell, and eat and yell. Okay, little did you know you were gonna come to a durational piece tonight. My next poem is the longest poem in the world about Cher. Cher is famous for movies like Silkwood and The Mask, songs like Believe and If I Could Turn Back Time, some of which I'll quote from tonight. She's more recently famous for her Twitter stream, which is teeming with emoticons. Oh, that reminds me. Here they are. Okay. Um, this poem is also about this emoticon, which I've named Cher's Heart. This poem has one 45-second intermission. It's called Emoji for Share Heart. Where we're going, we don't need names, Share. 
I say, what about, she says, where we've been? Sort of an ode moment. <sighs> Cher, captain of fishnet ballads, sailor of man floods, I invoke thee here in the spirit of interdependency, in the spirit of assembling a politic against diva poetics. I invite you to depend on me, Cher. Come sit with me, my lyrics swing low register behind the curtain. Confess to me your deepest indignant baggage on Twitter, your outlaw songs, your lyrics of suffering, your stylish tarantula outfits, your Bob Mackie smackdowns, your living of righteous odes, and your outrunning the paradox of commodification. Come be with us tonight at the Poetry Project Share. Share our sick saint who called David Letterman an asshole on live television. You in boots, spur in my side, faster, faster, Share. Every line, every second, my most endurance means more in love with your bang-bang, Broadway, horse-ridden heart. You're our spangled legend, your burlesque borne out a tight thigh. An awkward mode of appropriation, share this razzle of identity. I've heard the rumors. Are they true, share? After you ate that taco, they say your face gets more and more normal. Share your see-through pants, your sweet Chaz heart. I'd clean up your concert for you. I'd look from afar. Share meta madame of my inner sanctum secret ski chalet, your wingspan bats a thousand, and I'm just getting up to speed. I'm just getting up to drape my long Meryl Streep scarf arms over your worn out, flat ironed, unrequited lesbian, working mom, porch swinging heart. So proud of you, Cher. Long squeeze the silkwood tree. Blessed be your singing heart, Cher and your ass tattoos in removal, because there is just no context for wildness anymore. Let the process of undoing render wild hearts free. XO, keep on walking in Memphis. The Believe Tour, 1999, full concert, youtube.com. To live for one week with Cher is this experiment. Living with Cher on my side, Cher in my thoughts, Cher all around me, is my performance, my body concert, my acting in concert. Cher's role is to take up some of the burden, to perform with me in concert, to carry some of my daily load. We will figure out the parameters together, wet hands gripping the negative space of the imprint. Hold me, Cher. Help me get through this through you. Help me to get at this through you. 
it is a practice of improvisation within a scene of constraint. Moreover, one does not do one's gender alone. One is always doing with or for another, even if the other is only imaginary. Judith Butler, Acting in Concert, 2004. There is a certain departure from the human that takes place in order to start the process of remaking the human. There is a certain departure from the share that takes place in order to start the process of remaking the share. Just the beginning. Me and you and Cher's withering aura, outside tasting the freeze of rain, sucking on wet empire, yes, swilling, or can make it so pouring. Me and you and Cher's withering aura, out of doors, in friendship, meeting one another, just the three of us, slight breeze, hot sauce, and little river. Is it fall? Are we in El Centro, California? Are we being born, Cher? Which future now with us so friends? Please allow my dramas to collapse. Keep me nailed to the present, crisscross desert hearts. Cher believes meditation is the peaceful death and that three women make a family. I ask Cher if meditation is like reading magazines. In repose, she rolls those round brown ones around, making top eyelid car wash. We three share costumes and cry controversy across time. My own windshields flooded into dark gutter. Blink, blink goes the year in my own ripped heart. I'll share our order on the dash. Awkwardness about meeting Sunny at age 16 a jumbled narrative that only makes sense inside the tacos. Later, we'll foot the bill, fold the tortilla, if you will. Cher says, you can't pause a record, and we wholeheartedly agree. Our heart's really in it, the tacos, I mean. Gush blood, despite our vegetarian hearts. So, so philanthropy and activist are you, Cher, cranking that pedal, throwing those white dice, Bonds mean protection. Hot blood emergency sauce means the maids aren't waiting any longer, and my time will swell. My heart might tremble over and pour over pancakes. Don't worry, I look weird, Cher's son says, but otherwise I'm real normal. The mask in the middle. Oh, my Oscar. Big gold honey daddy. The breakfast in my heart is panicking, burning through the loin under the cloth. I can't turn back time to before myth martyr, but I try. Our order comes first, finally. We are ecstatic. Oh, how will I cherish this half-share horseware? You'll never begin to know share. And my friends glow so wide-eyed upon me. Little baby knife fishes they are when I disclose over top Cher's ornery blinking. You bunch of guppies, I ordered this generous meal and paid by check in the comfort of my own phone for you. 
I feel so slick shaming and in glitter gloves. These kids actively spank my tacky tabletop nearly over. It stings when I buy it until we refuse to take a tip. Cher, I want you to know I go home directly to my house, operate dinner, thinking of your houses and your horse-long career. I just this once forgot to tweet you. If I could turn you around in the words, if I could turn into you around in the words, if I could call back time, if I could find you a way out, you could give me your heart. The time could take back what has hurt you. Your heart could, in time, take back, become. What if we can turn back? Time, hurt, marriage, heartache, designer fashion, perfume, lace, stilettos, turn back time, then become shares flooding heart beating. Maybe we should move somewhere where it's clean, Meryl Streep says. You mean with, Cher says, a dyke? The ending. I believe the guppies love me. Verily, I press send them the beloved Cher. In response, Sperm River, down the proud quad in this simple university town, splits the bank, all mud-slinging in the newspapers for months, there is no moon. And what with grandfather's environmental cock in the mice piece powder, so much sawing, the carpentry of my voice quickening, as with mace, I warble. Oh, share your heart beating truly benefits me, and our clean future I'm slipping nowly into, intimate gowns softly cuddle together as girl cubs who won't wake or become wild. In fact, this water warps around me via you and your withering trademark. The connect is becoming. Share is a way to turn back self, remake human bonds through hearts not our own, lives the line of biography, the fissures of admiration. I identify that Cher is not me, but beside a flash spiral of cartoon far stars, away, away from my flooded universe of puffed gold dust and emergency showers, now playing, today spewing, leaked atoms armed for our fight, for our dance, for our fight, for our dance. Okay, this is my um, last poem, and it's the beginning of a manuscript that I've been working on uh, with Monica, and it doesn't have a title, um, but I describe it to people by saying it's um, my revenge against the Reagans. Um, and it started when I became like perversely obsessed with looking at pictures of Nancy Reagan on the internet. And it works better if I get really creepy. It's called Red Ribbon. Her gown's a real sizzler, floor-length Bolshevik with high beaded collar. 
my little Galanos nesting doll, Nancy Reagan before me, in the avant red I adore, and shy away. What's a little haute couture to the woman who, de who denies everything? Trippy kitten telephone wires lead me back to the bunker choir and my secret rage. From here, I remind Nancy on hold that allegiance comes with a price. Signed with a nice love always, I voted. I can no longer give blood. Right up into the future, what Nancy wears influences everything. Even me, her groping styles determine all, for instance. Which window I open on which side of the house? What is a simple choice for her, a perky ribbon on a casual pullover, worn in a waltz across the White House thawed, a yawn toward the helicopter, her strident pilot, uncertain hand to shade his eyes. Contingencies like these dictate my week's reading. Soul on Ice, Lolita, A Dash of Dickinson. Another sequence of events demands I take up tennis, possibly build a barn. Inside the barn, I discover reading tea Verbena Sacrifice, Mars in Retrograde, Shadow Spells. Before long, I learned to call her on capture. Conjuring long spirits suddenly as of aircraft travel. Gallant as if Through Nancy, I begin to see behind the image, not paranoia, but the comfort of another dimension growing out behind this one starts to soothe pains, suggest lovers to me. So elemental, our one and only catalyst is allure. Eventually, my trusty old post becomes a shadow of what it once was. <clears throat> Dear North Americans, I collect Nancy Reagans. We'll accept doubles, payment in advance. Seeking red ladies, vacation maidens, stationary Nancys, those who read written upon. 
reluctantly will consider damaged Nancy's. Those involved in her rather hasty departure in May of 87 to yellow. Those aren't her, aren't really Nancy's. The wind is our streets, a romance behind us. Love, Satan. <laughs> Just kidding. Satan. In 1991, AIDS takes on the color of Nancy's party, a right Republican red. At a certain point, everywhere you looked for AIDS, you'd find Nancy Reagan in any one of her elegant gowns. In this one, she reclines on a plush red couch, a drowned mannequin washed to shore. She's prostrate in pointy shoes, bloodshot costume blazing, and folded craftwise, one over the other over the other, her stilted pose, her sudden emotionless face, her maddening inability to lounge. At the center of her coil, that murderous pillow lies embroidered like a gravestone, R period, R period. The live self blinking behind the one represented, the self that knows its others, the Nancy's. And the questions brimming inside my mouth emerge, one and then two slimy bubbles flubbing up against the next hopeless era. What self is safe? What self wants to be safe? I'm no Prince Charles, but I swear I once overheard Ronnie request of Nancy's blank confusion. Won't you, mommy, my little devil, slip into something a little more red? Thank you. I want to introduce Matt Longabuco tonight, I guess, as friend, I mean, and poet, or I want to introduce Matt out of friendship to maybe help articulate for myself what draws me to his poetics, which I think can best be discussed somewhere in the crack between um, Agamben and Derrida's understanding of friendship. I mean, no, the root of their split, uh, you know, that phrase in... Um, Aristotle, uh, my friends, there is no friend. So maybe not friendship. Or maybe it is to take the false friend of translation, the false cognate, but also the question of falsification and invention that is the root of positioning ourselves within the heteronymic life that each of us must occupy. 
So maybe I said to myself, So, maybe I said to myself, I'll take a walk with Matt's work, which I did last night. So I apologize if it is, in some way, oblique. That's how walks work. So let's start back with, with Derrida, because was, I was sitting on my desk, and that won't take long, and then we'll be done with it. So Derrida says, even before having taken responsibility in our name to each one of us for this or that affirmation, we are already taken or caught up, each and any one of us, in a kind of asymmetrical and hetero, uh, um, heteronomical curvature of the social space, more precisely in the relation to the other prior to any organized socius, to any determined government, to any law. What is taking place at this moment, the disquieting experiencing we are having, is perhaps just the silent unfolding of that strange violence which has for so long, forever, insinuated itself into the origin of the most innocent experiences of friendship or of justice. We have begun to respond. Okay, that's there. Um, but perhaps what we are really looking for when we approach friendship is kind of the upside of, well, the radio was on right when I was writing this, and Mike Matheny, former catcher, uh, was saying, just the teeth and the blood, waiting for the bus, a pint of blood on the field. And I'm cast out of the sight of friendship into the violence I sometimes see in these poems, Matt's that is, which is a violence that the line breaks foist on them, one that constantly sees this recurring question of expanse. To what effect we must bind the poem to the mast of the line, to the time of the project, to the time of thought or observation. Um, I've been reading, among other things, um, through Matt's project where he went to every first-run mass-market film at a local movie theater, and this time-bound expanse feels uh, trapped to me within the question of what we are doing in between cinematic events, as though the importance or triviality of the, by definition, trivial were up for debate, when it is, of course, more than its importance that can only be found in the lump sum that shaves off such a tremendous amount in taxes uh, that, as in that Twilight, so uh, Twilight Zone episode, uh, one is left owing the government for the good fortune of finding a genie in a bottle. I mean, what we have here is a question of how the translated sense of self that is so circumscribed by community, whatever that has ever meant, and friendship to be real bodies, bodies that eat and sleep and shit, precisely to ask the question, as Matt does in the movie Frozen, why we want to identify with the cruelty that is power, if only for the fact that it is allowed the greater song and the capacity for homogenous cruelty that rep represents the implicit failure of desire itself. As when I saw Bluebeard at the Met with my uh, parents and my mom, Mom kept insisting that the ending was idiotic because is she dead or not? What's she singing for if she's dead? So it's interesting to me, of course, to look at recent work of Matt's and to read, this is a quote, when I walk I chat with facades of buildings and discourse with the water flowing my way in sewer pipes underfoot, castigate, uh, castigate absent antagonists or finish the sentences of long lost friends. Everyone notices the hugeness of the city. It's trafficked, it's trafficked tight around it like parcel strings or piano wire. Rachel says New York cops always stand around grinning like everything's a huge joke. 
because it asks the reader, the whole poem does, but perhaps these lines in particular, to question what this discourse is or might be. I watched three cops standing outside a Best Buy on Friday, protecting it from its consumers or protesters, one of them smiling and pointing inside, the other saying, yeah, I found it, no problem, or the cop outside the building at Baruch College today, stepping outside, pushing past me to yammer to his buddy on the other end of the line, well, they all say he took steroids, but I don't think he did. I mean, what is this minutia, this gesture, or in the same poem where we are led to look at Simone Weil's work, where the gesture of grace feels so impossible sometimes, however close it may be, as she is quoted in Matt's poem, it is not by chance that you have never been loved, to wish to escape from the solitude is cowardice. I'm going to skip down here, because I realize that I actually wrote a lot more than I thought I did. Um, so I nap and wake up fantasizing that space where this city becomes a marshy, festering pool where the rich are forced to eat one another. You see, I missed the good part here, but <laughs> uh, where the rich are forced to eat one another and the total victory of Nile consumes all, but also where that this city was built on rock and roll, and that corporate rock and roll, the only rock and roll that might own the right to saying it did, indeed built this city, and is built on oppression and theft. I am finding that I might go on forever here trying to find that moment that crystallizes these thoughts, but that my friendship and admiration for Matt Longabuco's poems lies in the fact that I'm not good at wrapping up. Case in point, and it is something I turn to uh, this work for, to note concerning lines missing or printed I'll hang it in my new place and daily follow with my eyes its contours into the plane they affect, this is Matt, into the plane they affect, like leaning forward while the film plays to take a sip of whiskey from the screen. Please welcome Matt Longabuco to the Poetry Project. Thanks, Judah. Can you send me the whole thing? Um, thanks for having me, and thanks everyone here. Um, I really love it here, and I've learned so much here, and it's great to be here. And thanks, Max, for that reading. <clears throat> my pole star is behind me, so my apartment feels awful. It's like living in a Shauna Moulton video. Low, deaf clouds chasing each other up the walls. Bric-a-brac convulsed by devotion. Seeing spots after staring at the light fixture. One's a maroon blot. I should have gone to not one but three separate people for advice. Am I one of those poets always talking of the sweetness of honey? Being baptized again, though I'd never been baptized before. Yours the hand on my forehead. The water giving way beneath me, almost solid under my skull. Oh, that was what you wanted? So much of blue jeans are those thick white threads that stretch over a hole in the knee where mostly the people we know tumble down pink hair, blue hair, two-faced God, four-faced God. So careful to say I dreamt not of you, but of the you and me. All I want is to have a line of my poetry cited toward the quaking finish of one of your essays when you touch the rim of the cup and make it sing, a styrofoam container that squeaked like a mouse the whole walk over. Hop on my line. They announce the next event over the fairground speakers. Can't hear what, but it will be immense. It goes to the examiner, who lives alone on Telegraph Hill. The first great horse is my horse. The man tells his horse. The horse knows he's being flattered. 
head down, head up, head down, head up, condescending to the part in the history book about how people used to think their ancestors' spirit, spirits inhabited the house. You make sure you're safe. You hear the sound of the doors you locked, staying locked, staying, staying. And everyone knows they're not supposed to call after 11. How did I teach them this, and why do they accept it? In the faraway city, I walked to an Airbnb at the top of the hill. It was hotter than I'd expected. There were nettles heaped up by the stone curbs, caked around the gutter things. And my rolly thundered over the terrain so loudly I blushed, like a coffin strapped to a little red wagon, out of control at the derby. In this part, it's early. I'm still walking up the hill and startle a crow an instant before he can eat an honest-to-God pink worm. I say you're welcome as I pass. The room I'd rented has a cold clamminess to it. Basement, though it isn't. I can't light it up. In my bedroom tonight, thinking of it, I hear a loud cuckoo, a summons to a friend's estate. When I arrive, the younger brother's slowly dribbling a basketball, drops a nod that means I've been tricked into this, then explodes to the hoop. I want to look back up this poem like I watched that stammering practitioner trace my spine with his pointer on the scan. All these poems are about my chiropractor. <laughs> a good poem by a bad person. A bad poem by a good person. A good poem that turns out to be a bad poem, this sometimes happens, by a good person who turns out to be a bad person, this sometimes happens. A bad poem that turns out to be a good poem, this almost never happens, by a bad person who turns out to be a good person, this almost never happens. A boring poem by a bored person, a flimsy poem by a serious person, a highly regarded poem by a well-liked person, a begrudgingly liked poem by a problematic person, a widely circulated poem by a feared person, a loud poem by a loud person, a fucking amazing poem by an exhausted sinner, a dirty poem but spiked with critique by a sexy person, an uncanny metamorphic poem by an unpopular person, a political poem by a sanctimonious person, a poem for all humanity by a self-involved person, an influential po poem by a person long since changed from the person who wrote it. It's plausible to believe the poems write the people a blood-curdling poem by a maniac, an idiotic poem by a tyro, an unbelievably long poem by a cretin, an accomplished pastiche by a lifelong acolyte of a great, though dangerous, person, a poem in which two lines are perfect by a doomed student, a poem whose existence breeds other poems by a master, a poem whose existence swallows other poems by a master, a masterpiece by a person we can't see but who sees us very well. No one says they put pleasure first, so there's no one I trust. Sorrentino's bitterness, this spring's swollen tongue, Rene Ricard, Pierre Pernod, the troll living under the Williamsburg Bridge, determined to make a spark, throwing oneself against the face of the rock. Hi, should I fold my coat over my sleeve, or will the pockets spill out? Hi, with an enormous notebook, too shameful to carry around the Met, for dear life, I clutched a bench, removing its mahogany finish in four parallel gouges, while a man in a beret seemed to hear my groans from beside the Ionian column, who swirls in the swirls of that lady's walker's luggage-like wheels repeat. 
Someone four feet away tells a story about bathing in the Ganges. Oh, for a flyer or pamphlet without print on the back. How easily the artisans in this gallery share their common style. Grant cycles of the ancient world. With Odysseus, it's always the same question. Do you want to win or don't you? The geyser keeps the hour. Abrupt fist of water from the muck at the pupil of the ice, followed by spray blowing away to vaporize with a sizzle. Totoro's love for the slap of raindrops on leaves. Since when does my body feel like a tube of putty, uniform all the way through? Numb and obsessed with knowledge forbidden to possess. Failed when asked for this specifically today to produce a crazy story from my childhood. Had a light in me then, and if I bent, it was to tend it. What do people do with cigarette lighters? Oh, right, pocket. Not precisely on, this historical, on the historical site, to this day still unknown, of the infamous five points, you were being difficult. All this hideous fireproof shit, poorly hung chain link fences, bulging belly. Wish those last fries were out of my periphery. Did I ever tell you I was in Anything Goes? Or how on, how on the rush hour six, doing an involuntary worry or two, heard a 13-year-old panhandler chew out a nine-year-old panhandler? for not going around the car aggressively enough, and to make his point, plucked the one dollar they'd made out of the hat and ripped it up. No one on the train could breathe or meet each other's gaze. I am a child of earth and starry skies, read the lamellae, embossed gold tokens carried as talismans against forgetfulness in hell. Before we shower, we sweat, then take the Driz boulevards in flawless makeup. The beauty of never a care helps carry the ice. Last hope to shed, to be something later. A glimpse of this the moment you stop listening. Sometimes I stop too, or start listening to something else. Bomb planted while trying to outthink fate in that too hectic way that later leaves one vaguely, vaguely embarrassed. Now when things get quiet, the walls tick. Okay, bye, I'll send you those links. Um, this one I want to dedicate to a friend of mine uh, who's not here, but a dear, very dear man. A said, when he started accepting Medicare, the backgrounds of his patients changed. There were convicts now. Someone who took a year to confess, he said confess, how she'd turned her skin into a mask like a burn victim's skin. Livid, I saw it. I'd asked, I was curious about something. At night while she slept, I'd watched film after film, period pieces especially, whose sets obsessed me, a certain opulence, fixtures and furniture and wood, expensive and time-consuming malleable and sensitive to style. It wasn't nostalgia I experienced, but the spurt of resource, the buckle, not the belt. St. George's black armor in Martyrell's depiction. St. George, the orphan in Tribune, martyr of the Wheel of Swords, somber going to his death, but ever alive to Satan, the dragon pinned at the end of his lance. And when you slay Satan, which idea do you slay? The idea of linear time or the idea appealing but sometimes used by the cruel to rebuff us, remember, that all times are one, which if true means this moment is eternally the moment when Kay, a freshman or sophomore in high school, is in band practice, he plays sax, as in the nightmares he's suffered all year, the phone on the classroom wall rings and his name is called by the teacher, an arbitrary person who in his office tells Kay his mother has finally died of cancer, and Kay doesn't cry in the office but rides his motorcycle, he's precocious, to the mall where his good friend meets him and weeps by proxy for the woman who was like a mother to him too since he grew up among Christian conservatives from whom he sought refuge and in fact soon after Kay's mom's death joins the army 
goes to Iraq, meets and marries a Venetian anarchist, and becomes the head of a leftist cell in Prague, whose plans include having him work for a large corporation to undo it from inside, if we think such things are possible. Kay and I argue about this on Crosby Street, then get on the motorcycle, the same one from years before, and bounce over the cobblestones. Nothing's possible. When Ann Boyer gave Ariel her book, she said, it goes to a dark place and there's no way out. Still on the case, still examining the photographs. I put them in order. They tell a story that changes when I remove one that must be out of sequence or else I don't know what innocence looks like. I thought it looked like delight and chance until I re realize I also don't know and can't learn or uncover these facts. Is this the fire that gets worse when I pour whiskey on it? I sleep in the car, the armrest in my ribs, far enough down the block to clock the front door, not close enough to be seen from the window. These photographs, if I could speed them up, motives even their subject doesn't know, couldn't confess. Long, dark street, I carry a weapon, I'm all run along now, insects, then cry with my landlady, then wake up feeling awful, Let's focus on these photographs, the luminous promise of a new one, painstakingly obtained because of distance, because of light, because of information. The guy who empties the dustbin has a joke about all the information except the iota we want. The guy who takes my money for whiskey says, if everything keeps changing. The waitress drops the order book into her apron pocket, and her hand stays there a long time before it flips out a long, wrapped straw. On the subway, everyone's hands are busy. I'm thinking, you absolute fuckers. You sad sacks totaling life, many-headed as it prefers. Who wants this case and license, this trick with the plate glass window and angle of vision? I earn a teaching certificate in a basement. I wear this hat till I forget it's on my head. Then when I'm not wearing it, swear I feel the dent of the band. The answer is in these photographs and the pattern of who liked them and when. An expensive application tells me more about this than the interface is disposed to reveal. None, nothing, none of this is police work. Do the police kiss and sniff the photographs? No, they do not. Do the police arrange sparks over the eyelids of the prime suspect? No, of course not. I am not a brute police spraying blue fluid. I ref refresh the scene until the secret appears. To my trained eye, the third tree from the left is a pregnancy. The sewer is where we think liberation belongs. I spy a Kate Spade wallet by the curb on Houston and pick it up while cabs hurdle past and think now I will do a good deed and afterwards will tell the photographs what I did and what can they do then but submit and testify their conspiracy. Shouldn't have said that. The white lines on Houston disappeared when I said that. And a cloud put a hitman thumb over the camera of the sun. The doors of the boutiques and galleries all snapped shut. I heard the scrape of the metal bolts. There would be no fleeing in or through them now. Yet at the same time it was close. It, a chance. A large black ant on one's thigh, suddenly perceived with a struck match of disgust. A tumor or monster, suddenly perceptible, targetable in its just-knit-together horror, breathtaking, too. A wrestling match for a knife or gun comes down to who's the matter for it, and the more desperate. I crouch down, dangling a beer bottle, to inspect the mildew, and a fiber glows like a fiery hieroglyph on the bath mat. It comes back, not the paper boat of onion rings, but the bracelet pendant behind it. Not the failed seduction while the jukebox page is turned, but the successful seduction, the failure permitted, while the bike handlebars shuddered, shuddered over cobblestones a million Jews once dragged their skepticism over, leaving slug trails of fish guts and making my forebear smile unreservedly. Deep growl of planes dragging banners across the horizon over beaches before the end of the season. The cinched trench coat, the bulge, photographs that distend in every direction, photographs that lighten and darken, throwing details, 
mute remainders, slick as oil, or soft as forest mushrooms that disintegrate at the touch, revealing under a rust-brown shell a lurid orange heart. Was there a childhood? Was there one true moment, even true to you? Are you a criminal? If you say the answer is no, then explain why a detective knows your name. I'm just going to read one more, um, this poem called At the Baths. It has an epigraph from Roberto Colasso. There is a debt that finds its way into every feeling of gratitude. If at some moment, as a sensation underlying every other, the pure fact of being alive gives rise to a sense of gratitude, that is enough to establish a relationship with an unnamed counterpart to whom that feeling is directed, and even to outline an obligation which may arise in a whole variety of ways. One of these is the sacrifice. Count five light sources in this room. The lamp on the table, yellow shade. Floor lamp in the corner, milky white. White rectangles of three computer screens. One near, one far, and mine a foot in front of me. None enough to brighten the large space, dim after nightfall, except the circle around each source, if they're still really circles, once they've been draped over the room's irregular topography and spots where light paints the few reflective surfaces, plasticized edges of long tables, and the grain of wooden floorboards in sharp relief, ridges and sand at low tide when the sun's going down. Long shadows, and I'm close to dozing. The baths took it out of me earlier, though I pour coconut water, coffee, and beer back in, and ate beets and dumplings there, stale bread smeared with hot mustard, slimy dolma, tea, at a table against the paneled wall from which the former president of Finland member of the Russian and Turkish baths since 1977, the plaque proclaims, gazes out. Gabe across from me, gladiatorial biblical in one of those wine-colored cotton tunics you take from the stack. I'm in one, and so are the three at the next table over, two scrawny guys and an attractive woman with a frank gaze. Everyone seems to speak Russian. We're so wrapped up in conversation, we don't meet anyone. Wonder if the giant bear of a man giving a massage on the bench outside the sauna knows her or just met her, in other words, how bold is the touch we're watching? Everyone's watching. He and his friend, stocky and built, come in the sauna at one point, and the bear, bending the ear of the guy beside him, recites a recipe. It involves drinking lemon juice and chewing the pulp, no seeds, for a gallbladder cleanse. Not to be undertaken, he now warns the room, without the precaution of a six-month diet of raw vegan food, excepting perhaps the occasional bowl of broth in which kale, mustard greens, or arugula have been quickly cooked all accompanied by a heavy regimen of water, not city water, he specifies. Then just as another woman enters the sweltering room full of men, he tells us the final effect of this diet and cleanse is the passing of water through liver and bladder with a feeling he says he can only call orgasmic. He repeats this word, leaves. The stocky one remains and must be thinking of his friend's emphatic word and its lingering effect. Tells us he himself has been learning lots of words lately, is signed up for several word of the day email bulletins, and likes the one he just received, but admits he's too high to remember it. It's like if I say I'm dying in here. Hyperbole, suggests Gabe. And the guy, yeah, that's it, love that. And now I feel inferior, which makes us a little uncomfortable. Then asks if we know, he doesn't know, the difference between propensity and proclivity. Hmm, says Gabe. I stay quiet. I don't know if there is one. Everyone ponders another half minute. Maybe proclivity is a little more willed, Gabe finally offers. 
whereas propensity is more out of your control. What about the difference between succinct and synopsis? They're different parts of speech, says Gabe. So a speech is succinct, asks the guy, misunderstanding before the woman, silent until now. You'd say that was a succinct synopsis. This impresses and enlightens the whole crowd. Good time for an exit. I skeeve the wet floor, but luckily have on slippers, but the slippers I also skeeve. Grotto of tiles and pipes, darker than expected, danks the word. Below ground, humid and fragrant with exhalations from the aromatic sauna. Do people ever fuck in the showers, which have doors? Or is it enough to pour a bucket of water over one's own overheated flesh for relief? Carly speculated once whether there was prostitution going on at the Banya in Kensington, where she'd taken Malka, who was curious about baths after watching Miyazaki's Spirited Away, set in a bathhouse for spirits. Our favorite part is when one who appears to be nothing more than a slow-moving heap of oozing shit arrives, clearing out the disgusted attendants and guests, leaving only the determined young heroine who guides it to a giant bath and pours hot mineral water over it in a torrent, shrinking it enough so that she's able to perceive a partial object piercing its side, takes hold, it's stuck, others aid her, and after they heave together, what comes loose is an enormous tangle of trash and broken objects, rusted metal parts and shards, torn inorganic shreds, while the spirit, freed from this burden of, or infection, is revealed in its true form, elegant, wizened, and takes grateful, majestic flight. Away from the impromptu vocab test, we get back to our intent poetry talk, each recalling our respective entries into the community, such as it is. I don't refer to its reflection on Facebook, perverse theater whose curtains never close. Our entries, we agree, were a strange mix of fascination and ambition, friendship and distress. I don't tell Gabe I'm afraid of the very hot sauna and the very cold pool. We've been joking lately about the cold, clear light of day that exposes poems written late at night, like the one I tried to write about whiteness and maleness and the fear that constitutes them. By morning, it sounded all wrong. I should have said, my task's to take apart piece by bloody piece, a self built around nothing, a, a malevolent void one harbors by default and must with diligence expose. Somewhere this minute, people are at AWP, but FTP, if you believe something about poetry, say it, don't wait, and be clean. It's April, freezing. While I waited outside, watching people come and go two by two, I looked across the street at a cosmetics or candle shop I kept mistaking for a bookstore, slipped around the corner to the bodega and did a quick side pay while the person in front of me gathered and brought items to the counter one at a time. Boot print and dog shit, empty space on the corner where the fire from B&H Dairy spread, no building now, and whatever's built is sure not to fit the ones around it. Not as if I can picture how it looked. Stacy probably could, or Anselm, or John, who first told me about these baths, established 1892, long called simply the 10th Street Baths, and one among the city's many for years, now rare, still popular, once frequented, as one blog notes, by Sinatra, Timothy Leary, and JFK. In 1921, I read, one Herman Schwartz lived in an apartment above, was robbed of an expensive suit, then saw it at the very next day on an Abbey Goldstein at 125th and 3rd Avenue. Schwartz convinced a cop the suit was, suit was his by correctly predicting what brand of cigar was in the jacket pocket. Earlier, while Carly worked, I watched my daughter. I'd watched her all week. It's her spring break, Passover and Easter, and on one energetic day, got it together for a trip to the Met, where she spent half the time mesmerized in that just-restored Renaissance chamber, the studiolo from the Ducal Palace in Gubbio, crafted entirely in inlaid wood, incredibly rich and smooth, the shuttered windows and benches a meticulous trompe l'oeil, is tripping out on intricacy just another symptom of that fatal syndrome called the West? Today couldn't manage more than to let her play in her room while I lay on Carly's couch, 
turned on the tube, HBO, and realized that 18 years after the fact, I was actually going to watch Contact, the movie where Jodie Foster travels the universe's tunnels of warped time to reconcile with her dad. Then took Malka to Whole Foods for lunch with my mom, who told me my own dad, when they were driving recently and came to a ramp they needed to take either north or south, turned to her and asked her what town they lived in. He'd forgotten. Three years later, I was at therapy talking about him. You seem angry. Yeah, I am, I said. It's like someone so awful to you that all you can do after a lifetime of trying is protect yourself. But you long for the person so much you know you'll be too weak to really keep them away unless you continually stoke a hatred so hot that even if it keeps you free, it harms you too. After I left, I wrote, thinking of him, but not just of him. I wonder if the shape into which my rage has contorted my body would fit perfectly into the shape into which your rage has contorted yours. My neck's been stiff and aching for weeks. Recent Facebook horoscope, supposedly influenced by an eclipse, totally sucked. It said this was the month to pay debts or have them repaid. Increasingly, I think I should have ceased to exist on that day, now some time past, when my debts exceeded the total of my assets plus all my future prospects combined. And once again, I've shelled out a lot for a poem. The bill's high when I hand in my key, number 46. When Gabe realizes he's misplaced his, there's a moment we fear it's gone floating to the murky bottom of the cold pool. We plunged in once, but no, we wouldn't get in again. The thought alone makes my breath shorten. Hot and cold contend. Moisture and heat are the conditions for life. I'm pretty sure people can't just pass through wormholes in spaceships. Don't we know the limits, however much we love it, of collage? When I turn to see my past, I see numbers instead. The steam escaping a manhole cover on first makes it seem like we never left the baths. The yellow traffic lights sunflower-like in spring, right down to clustered bulbs for seeds. What does giving up on someone say about what holds anyone together, like a call that can never be placed? Like, am I going to have to sit by his bedside feeling like I felt, trapped, gagged, when I was 7, 12, 17, older? In my backpack, taken from Locker 46 and slung across my broken back, sits that book called It's No Good by the Russian Kirill Medvedev, who starts all his poems not with a title but three slashes, claw marks, parallel and decisive. So there's no title, for example, to the poem whose first line is, I talked to the girl selling vegetables, and describes a conversation with the vegetable seller. A conversation, Medvedev scrupulously informs us, without sexual subtext, yet somehow flirtatious all the same, although she likes the guys who work as janitors at the nearby hospital, and I like little intellectual girls with sharp tongues. Still, they're swept up together from their respective coordinates in that momentary encounter, and despite himself, he imagines her prematurely aging, sees her made up like a middle-aged whore, I know that word makes me cringe too, and horribly pictures the semen of his fantasies rubbed all over her body as an anti-aging cream, but in the last lines draws back. It didn't happen, it couldn't have happened, because we all live in our illusions like sheep, and none of us can really help one another with anything. These Marxists. I write this in a large, dark room among others. Bolaño's story about the baths of Mexico City ends with some faces, workers in the hallways, whom I no longer remember, but who were certainly there. I was at the baths thinking of repulsion and attraction and how they become each other, like hot and cold, or forgetting and, for and forgiving, of bodies if you could press or tug the money from their despoiled cavities to let a trickle of vitality begin to flow, of whiteness and whatever Russia means. It means both this incredible writer I quoted and the Jews who came right here to bear my bearers, and also the porn that comes to find at the other end of cable line and wireless signal, my numb body wondering whether the groans on screen are real or the groans of realness neutralized, and whether they signal pain or pleasure or one masquerading as the other, 
the vaunted Russian pragmatism, or the equally vaunted wounded Russian romanticism under, understood to quiver just below the surface of the pragmatism to be unlocked by a lover. And romanticism's undoing in the sphere of delectation delivered up by geopolitics and xvideos.com or one of the portals that lead to it. And Marxism comes from there, or its embodiment, which is to say its death, or one of its deaths, and all the damage dying things do, lashing out in their death terror. And the invisible workers are anywhere, and sweat redolent of cabbage and potatoes, and poetry, of course, the poetry world, that naked space, obscure, bracing, and liquid. We stay up all night, and one of the last things Gabe tells me is that every single time he goes to the copy shop near his work, the woman, seemingly attached to the family who runs it, always sits in the same chair playing Diamond Dash, or some other game that looks like it, on a phone she has to squint into, even though she holds it a few inches from her face. Thank you. The Poetry Project has promoted, fostered, and inspired the reading and writing of contemporary poetry since 1966. Consider supporting us by checking out a reading, becoming a member, or donating at poetryproject.org.